It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning, San Diego Saints. Good to be back with you. Hope you had a wonderful Memorial Day weekend. Um... We are continuing uh, with a series on a book that I recently uh, wrote called Homecoming, How the Mystery of the New Covenant Brings Both Jew and Gentile Back to Abba Father. And uh, if you missed um, last week's show, I encourage you to uh, go over to the KPRZ uh, podcast and um, download last week's show because... Uh, for me to do a extensive review of it um, would really take away from the new material what we're going to be covering today. But I will do or attempt to do a very brief review of a lot of the points that we covered. And it's important that um, you understand the um, citations that were used in both the New King James um, and, uh, and also the Complete Jewish Bible by David Stearns that we use to make some conclusions um, that there were prophetical utterances from the prophet Isaiah revealing a conversation uh, between Father God and his son. And on two separate occasions, both in chapter 42 and again in chapter 49 of the book of Isaiah, the father is having a discussion with the son and he's the son being Jesus of Nazareth, Yeshua HaMashiach, as he is known in Hebrew circles, uh, uh, Jesus the Messiah. And uh, the message was, you're the new covenant. You, as my son, you are the new covenant. And uh, we gave a lot of citations on that, and uh, you may want to go back and review that. But a lot of people may not be used to thinking that, gee, the New Covenant is a who as opposed to a what. And the bottom line is that we concluded last week was uh, most certainly the New Covenant is a who. And um, the question becomes the New Covenant, since it was announced during the Babylonian captivity from another prophet by the name of Jeremiah in chapter 31, beginning at um, verse 31, and it goes for three verses. Let me see if I can find that real quick, and I'll take it out of the New King James. And this was during the um, Babylonian captivity, and... um, there was some repentance that was going on because the Hebrews realized that they had basically uh, violated God's protective ordinances, protective um, 
mechanisms and laws, and as such, um, they had uh, reaped what they had sown, which was when you disobey God's protective ordinances, things don't go well. And they are now uh, away from their homeland. They are in a foreign location called Babylon, and they are under um, basically the scrutiny of a tyrant and enslaved again. So um, I'm going to read from the New King James, Jeremiah chapter 31, starting at verse 31. At the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Verse 2, thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword um, found grace in the wilderness, Israel, when I went to give him rest. Verse 3, the Lord has appeared of old to me and said, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Okay. And actually, we want to jump ahead over to verse 31 out of chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make, here it is, a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this covenant, we're in verse 33 now of Jeremiah 31. But this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And we explained last week that the covenant that was broken, which is referred to um, in verse 32 of Jeremiah 31, was basically the Mosaic covenant. And we described that it was a bilateral promise, a promise for a promise. And um, the Jews were either unwilling or unable or both to keep that covenant. And we mentioned that that covenant was written on stone tablets. And um, the Holy Spirit was um, not part of their experience yet. And the, the desire by Father God to have a relationship with his children is so intense. It's really interesting that after Father God, through the prophet Jeremiah, announces a new covenant to people who are in captivity, uh, again, because they broke the last covenant, they disobeyed God, um, cause and effect, he, he says what he's going to do, what he intends to do about this new covenant uh, which will be uniquely and differently and um, as a new experience. He will place his law in people's minds, his children's minds, and write it on their hearts. But what's really interesting is the last part of verse 33 as to the purpose. Why is he doing this? And what it is, an internal law that is now placed inside the hearts and minds of God's children is going to bring about something that Father God desperately uh, is seeking. 
because he's obsessed with his children, obsessed in a good way. And it says, after the explanation of how he's going to uh, implement this new law and, and put it in place, he says, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So in other words, this new covenant being placed in a new location inside people, both in their minds, on their hearts, is a dramatic shift on how God wants to accelerate the reconciliation, the restoration of a, of a ruptured relationship between um, God and his children because of their embracing rebellion, spiritual rebellion. And we described that that spiritual rebellion didn't begin on earth. It began in a place called the second heavens. We see that in Isaiah chapter 14, um, where uh, Satan, the author of the spiritual rebellion against God, basically announces what we call the five I wills. And um, the five I wills were basically an announcement that uh, Satan wanted no part uh, to keep his proper place, to uh, carry out his or God's original um, intent for his function. And he basically um, was not satisfied. And we also talked about the fact that he was not in agreement with what... Uh, Father God had originally uh, established in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 as to placing um, mankind in a position of authority over the material creation. Um, Satan believed that he should have been given that privilege of authority, of ruling uh, the material creation. And that was not Father God's original idea. It was like, I'm not going to give that sort of authority to the angelic. And so um, I'm turning to, just really quickly, Isaiah chapter 14, uh, starting at verse 12, how you have fallen from heaven. O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you said in your heart, here are the five I wills, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt, get these two words here, my throne above the stars of God. Are angels supposed to have thrones? Or are thrones um, uniquely reserved for the Godhead and, um, and humans? not angels. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farther sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the Most High. So those are the five I wills. And, um, and so we, we pretty much spelled out that God has a problem on his hands, and the problem is not uh, where people are positioned or located. In other words, changing us from one location to another location doesn't fix God's problem. Um, and why is that? Well, but the rebellion against God began in the heavens. And so 
many times the gospel we preach is, you know, boy, I just need to get into heaven and everything swell. Well, the, re- the lo- relocation of us doesn't change um, who we are as fallen creatures um, after the disaster of Genesis chapter 3, where our original human parents bought into the notion that rebelling against God was just fine, and th- things would be, be wonderful. And they found out uh, what, a, what a calamity and what a disaster it was, and we've been suffering that ever since. So, so God's plan is, as we've as we said in the past, uh, is a circular, cyclical plan where he is going to return um, his human progeny, his human p- children, back to his original concept of saying man will be in charge, stewarding, tending, and keeping the inheritance of earth and not fallen angels. And so so what we see here is the journey as we Basically, spiritually speaking, we leave Egypt after we uh, have the Passover um, salvation, the Passover deliverance of uh, being freed from death because of the uh, and free from the judgment of death because of the blood of the Lamb that we smear on the on the uh, doorposts of our house, just as the Jews did, and the judgment, the angel of death passes over us. But the idea of all that deliverance is, as we discussed earlier, um, salvation, initially salvation, is really intended more as a scholarship than it is a diploma. And the reason is, is because um, just going to another location, untransformed, unchanged, back into the image of God, back into the likeness of God, as was declared in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Without that transition, uh, the rebellion, the spiritual rebellion still on earth, that was transferred down to earth in Genesis chapter 3, that began in the heavens in Isaiah chapter um, 14, um, that problem has to be addressed. And just taking us from one location from the earth and taking us up to a place called heaven, and I love heaven. I don't have anything against heaven. Um, but when I die, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to stay there. And that may shock some people, but the whole idea is Jesus, the Messiah, as a resurrected divine son of God, but he's also the son of man. He has his body back. And the resurrection, returning of the human body back to Jesus, is a signal that God never changed his mind that humans are coming back to rule and reign over the earth. And they say, well, where is that? Well, check out you know, Revelation chapter 5. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, we will be kings. We will be priests. And we are coming back to rule, it says, on the earth. That's a circular journey. And it's a displacement of a rebellious, um, angelic kingdom with God's original divine plan of saying, no, the material creation 
is the inheritance of my human children. I want them running, ruling, and reigning the material creation. And that's, we discussed, that's why Jesus doesn't show up as a, only as a spirit. Um, he is very God of very God, but he is also very man of very man. And that was signaling, that was messaging from Father God to the fallen angels to say, um, this Messiah, this rescuer, this um, author of salvation, he is also a human being called the Son of Man. And he, as such, is basically the first fruits or the forerunner to say, all my children who know me, who love me, who follow my, my ordinances, who allow me to place my, my law in their minds and write it in their hearts, they're coming back with him to reestablish God's heavenly kingdom, the kingdom of heaven back on earth and to earth. And But before that happens, there has to be a dealing with God's problem that he has on his hand, which is we, even after initial salvation, still have a fallen nature. It's called the old nature. It's basically a um, result of a fallen world that uh, disobeyed God, handed over our authority uh, to the spiritual rebels of fallen angels uh, in Genesis chapter 3 by disobeying God. And all of the... um, transition that has to take place only happens through a journey. And the journey, as we described uh, last week, is as we leave Egypt, when we are first uh, rescued from the prototype of what we see as Pharaoh having uh, the tyrannical government of, of slavery over God's children, um, that whole story of the rescuing of the Hebrew children is a prototype of what happens to us. And people who teach the typology, study of types and shadows, uh, pretty much are in uniform agreement that uh, Pharaoh was a representation of Satan in the spiritual kingdom that he tries to lord over us by keeping us enslaved to the power of sin. And, our, and the rescuing of the Hebrews um, with the blood sacrifice of the lamb without blemish uh, was a deliverance of sorts, but it was a rescue to redeem them from the captivity and the power of that demonic, pagan, sinful government had over them. And it was an opportunity to say, Follow my agent, Moses. He will show you the way on how to go to this place called the Sinai Desert. And we just celebrated uh, Pentecost last last weekend. And um, Pentecost in, in Hebrew is called Shavuot. It's the Feast of Weeks, the double portion. And uh, But it's the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And so that we explained last week that the journey to go out into the desert was to get reacquainted with the God that they had been away from for 430 years. It's a long time to be away from your God. Um, 
And God wanted to reconcile. God wanted to get reacquainted with his children and make himself known to his children to have a deep, lasting, abiding, protective, provisional, and in the sense of not temporary, but provisional, meaning all provisions are given to his children, type of relationship where they would identify not as subjects of Pharaoh, but be saying, no, we are human children, human progeny of of our creator father, God. And the only way that this reacquaintance can take place is, as he he says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, I'm bringing you out to the university of God. I'm paraphrasing, of course. But there's going to be a school of how to depend on me. There's going to be a school on how do you trust me for what? For everything you need in an environment that where you cannot provide materially for yourself. And, and so you are going to learn that I will be your source of divine food, not only human food, but divine food. That's where the manna comes um, uh, as they follow the cloud of uh, by day and the pillar of fire by night, because as they followed the cloud and the pillar of fire. Um, They needed to do that to learn to obey God because the very food that they would need the next day uh, would be at a location only if they obeyed and followed the signs from God. Water out of a rock, clothes that don't wear out, shoes that don't wear out. all, everything is going to be provided, and the most important thing is through the law at Sinai, it's basically getting to know a God who loves us, wants to protect us through these, through these um, laws, and wants to pr- um, provide for us through these laws and give us, again, our inheritance on earth. It's called the promised land, and they were going to excuse me, the promised land that was originally through the Abrahamic covenant. So all that to say that the only way that man is going to be able to have a genuine, deep relationship with God that will not continually fall like we see when the Assyrians took over uh, the nation of Israel when we see that the Babylonians came and take over. Those were all judgments um, because the people of God fell away from him. They didn't listen to him. They didn't have a relationship with him anymore. And they violated his precepts and his protective, protective um, guidance and laws. And as such, um, there was always a circular reconciliation process through repentance. But on this occasion in Babylon, in Jeremiah, 31, 31 through 34, there's a new covenant announced, and this covenant is not going to be written on stone tablets, and this covenant is going to experientially be more personal, more profound, more meaningfully deep, significantly more deep. It will basically explain that eternal life, as this law is placed on our minds and written on our hearts, leads to something called relationship with our Father 
God, creator. Because relationship with him, according to John 17, 3, is eternal life. Jesus said on the last night before he died, as he's talking to his apostles, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he sent. Eternal life, in that definition, wasn't referring to a location, wasn't referring to heaven, wasn't referring to a transportational experience. It's talking about a transformational experience back into the image and the likeness of God that mankind first received way back in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And Father God wants to reconcile. And the way to do it is to have this new covenant placed on our inside. It's an inside job. It's an, in- it's an interior renovation, if you will, an interior um, redoing, remaking. And we're going to talk about what that looks like um, and what does it sound like and what does it feel like when, when this new covenant is implemented. Put on your seatbelts. This is going to be pretty dramatic as to this experience of transformation back with a relationship to God, not transportation. See you after the break. God bless. Welcome back, San Diego Saints. And um, we are discussing something entitled the, <laughs> the Writing of the New Covenant is an Inside Job. Um, I would encourage you to go to last week's show because that's where we talked about um, how we concluded that the New Covenant is, in essence, a who and not a what, based on Jesus saying in Matthew five seventeen at the uh, Olivet Discourse, he said, I have not come to do away with the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And in the complete Jewish Bible, it doesn't say fulfill. It says, I have come to complete the law and the prophets. Now, if we can remember that God has a spiritual problem on his hand, which is called spiritual rebellion, which began in heaven, didn't begin on earth, and it was transferred down to earth when um, Satan was thrown out of his position. And we can see that also, not just in Isaiah 14, but also uh, in Ezekiel 28. And um, Satan was very close to the throne. He was one of the two covering cherub. And um, that proximity of closest to God wasn't good enough for him. His uh, beauty, his splendor, his um, position in the angelic kingdom wasn't good enough for him. He wanted to be like God. So if you're going to read what happened in the heavens, read both Isaiah chapter 14, beginning at verse 12, and then immediately go to Ezekiel 28, beginning at verse 14, and read those two side by side, and you'll see um, that the 
problem that God has is on his hands is, is not where people go because the rebellion began in heaven, <laughs> close to the throne of God. Check it out in Ezekiel 28, verse 14. You can't get much closer than being a covering cherub. If you can picture the Ark of the Covenant, well, the mercy seat has two cherubim on that. And the, and the understanding is um, of people who um, have studied the significance of the whole uh, tabernacle of Moses and the five fur- uh, seven furnishings of that um, concluded that it was the original location um, of Satan to be that close to the throne of God originally. And and where am I going with this? Well, where I'm going with this is that all that was in heaven. So our dying and going to a place called heaven, if we haven't allowed this transformational process of the interior writing of God's new covenant inside of us, and we say obedience to God is not important, and following his precepts is not significant um, because I'm saved by grace through faith, um, and I've checked off some boxes about what I believe in my mind, but there hasn't been any transfer over to my heart that I love God to the point where I want to say, I love you so much. And what did Jesus say? If you love me, what did he say in John 14, 21? Keep my commandments. That's a showstopper. How about in John 14, 23? He says, if you love me, keep my word. And we talked last week about the, the word word in that context also means commandments or law, if you will. And it's unfortunate. So many Gentile Christians today believe that um, we're not under any law. And that's, that's really um, sad that, well, other than maybe the law of love, and then when you ask them, well, what does the law of love mean? They can't define it. But to say that we're not under any law is a scary proposition because don't forget what God's problem is. God's problem is he has a spiritual rebellion on his hand that came down to earth and polluted everything and corrupted everything because mankind bought into it and agreed with Satan about, um, about the, what a great idea of rebellion against God was. And you don't fix that by simply transferring people from point A to point B. There's got to be an internal transformation of us who, although we've gone through initial salvation, we still have the corrupt sin nature in us. It's called the old nature, um, the fallen nature of human beings. And so God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with them so they can have their relationship with me restored. And we can get to know each other so intimately, so personally, so literally down to earth, we get to know each other again. And I want to put them back into the position that I had them in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, with having authority and dominion over the earth and walking with me but this is even more deeply now in the, in the New Testament. Um, by the way, if you say, well, where is the 
confirmation in the New Testament, what we see in the Old Testament about the writing of this new covenant that we saw in Jeremiah 31, 31. Well, that's an important question to ask because what we see in the Jewish Testament has to be also true that we see in the New Testament. And that is, it's mentioned twice in the New Covenant, as the New Covenant in the book of Hebrews. And it's mentioned in uh, Hebrews chapter 8. And let me see if I can find the verse here for you real quick. Um, it says, Hebrew 8, 8, Behold, finding fault with them, talking about the, the first covenant. Uh, let's go back to verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Verse 8, because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant Excuse me, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Verse 9, 8-9. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, but because they did not continue in my covenant. And that's, he's talking about the Mosaic covenant here, what happened at Sinai, at the Feast of Pentecost, at the Feast of Shavuot, as the Hebrews call it. And I disregarded them. And then in verse 10, where are we? Hebrews 8, chapter 8, verse 10. For this is the new covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. We're in the New Testament now, folks. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. Now, notice where all this is going. There's a point. There's a purpose to this. After he says, write, <laughs> write my laws on their hearts, there's a semicolon. And where are we? Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see where this is going? In order to have a restored relationship with God, because he is what we lost in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. We didn't lose heaven. We lost our relationship with our Creator Father. We were separated from Him. And as such, we both physically died and we spiritually died. Well, how can you say we spiritually died? Well, again, we have to go back to the definition of eternal life. And I keep going back. I know I sound like a broken record here, but it's John 17, 3. Jesus is explaining to His apostles what eternal life is. It's not dying and going to a place. It's relational. It's relational, not relocational. And Jesus says to his apostles, and this is eternal life. That's the intro <laughs> to John seventeen three. Pretty clear. That they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. You see that? Eternal life, if, if, that, if eternal life is a relationship, here's a question I have. When can you begin to experience eternal life? Do I have to wait until I die and go to a, another place, as I've been taught, both as a Catholic and as a Protestant, over a lot of years? Or, if it's relational, can I experience eternal life right now, right here and right now? 
It also uh, the new covenant also applies uh, appears I should say for, uh, on a second occasion in the New Testament, and that's in Hebrews chapter ten. And let's see here. It's verse 16. Well, let's actually start at verse 15 in chapter 10 of Hebrews. But the Holy Spirit also witnessed, witnesses to us, af, for after he had said before, and before it's referring back to Jeremiah 31, uh, 33 through 34, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. And then verse 17, he says, and then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering to, of, um, for sin. And it talks about what Jesus did. Therefore, brethren, this is verse 19, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. You see, the whole point was to get back to the presence of God. So check that out in verse 19 of Hebrews 10. Therefore, brethren, having the boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. That's talking about the Holy of Holies. That's, that's being able to go in, to draw near. And then verse 20, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, through his flesh, and having a high priest, that's referring to, um, to Jesus as our high priest, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. And so it's talking about a reestablishment, a re- restoration of the divine and human relationship. So this week, I wanted to talk about if Jesus is the new covenant, and that's based on twice, like I said, um, Isaiah uh, chapter 42 and Isaiah chapter 49, where Father God's having a, a conversation with, with his son and saying, I will make you the new covenant. And then we studied last week uh, Luke twenty two twenty, where we see Jesus uh, as Messiah declares himself to be the new covenant at the Last Supper. And something that we use in communion services all the time is 1 Corinthians 11. And basically repeating what Jesus says about this is the the, this, when he takes the cup, he says, this is the cup of the new, this is the new covenant effectuated by my blood. Wow. Brought about by my blood. And the new covenant, as we said, if Jesus is the word, and when he says in John fourteen twenty three, if you love me, keep my word, and my Father will love you. You see what happens when we allow this new covenant to be written in our minds and placed in our hearts as we obey. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments in 1421 of John. And he says in 1423, if you love me, keep my word. And then look what happens as a result. He says, and then I will love him and reveal myself to him. And then he says, and my father will love him. And then here's the zinger plural, and we will come, this is John 14, 23, and plural, we will come and make our abode with him. You see how relational and intentionally relational and inside we're talking about 
We're talking about an internal makeover. We are going back into the image of God that we received in Genesis chapter 1. We are going back in the likeness of God. When God comes in us, not just the Son, but in 1423, at epic, that elements of the Godhead become plural and say, I'm bringing Father God with me. He's coming too. And we are making our abode, our home, if you will, our domicile, our residence. There's a lot of different words that can be used, but it's the same intent, the same purpose. And so we talked about Jesus is the living new covenant. But who writes this living new covenant in the form of our deliverer, our savior, our king? Who writes this new covenant in our hearts and minds? And I want to take you to um, a verse in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. And it says, so all of us with faces unveiled, we see as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Now get this. And we are being changed into his very image from one degree of glory to the next, by Adonai the Spirit. Okay, now that's 2 Corinthians 3.18. That's the complete Jewish Bible. Okay? Um, let me read that to you in the New King James. 2 um, Corinthians 3, verse 18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding and as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit, that's a capital S, of the Lord. Now, let's talk about another mechanic of how this is supposed to be written and and placed in our hearts and minds. This process is to bring about reconciliation with the Father. And if you look at 2 Corinthians 5, Verse 17 through 18. This is all from the, also from the complete Jewish Bible. Therefore, if anyone is united with the Messiah, he is a new creation. So you see what happens when we allow the Holy Spirit to place the new covenant in the form of Messiah Jesus in our minds and on our hearts. Look what is the purpose of all this. I'm going to get on. I'm going to begin with 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is united with the Messiah, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Look, what has come is fresh and new. It is all from God, who through the Messiah has reconciled us to himself. Okay, so I want to read to you one more verse out of 2 Corinthians. And this is in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3, and let me just begin at verse 2. So where are we? In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 2, and then we'll get into verse 3 as well. This is Paul writing, you are our epistle written in our hearts. See that? Isn't that interesting? Known and read by all men, 
Okay, now let's look for the words of the new covenant here. Where is the I concept? Verse 3, clearly you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink by the Spirit, that's a capital S of the living God, not on tablets of stone. Why does he say that? Well, the old covenant at Mount Sinai was written on stone tablets. But on tablets of flesh, that is the heart, the heart. And so basically he's saying to the Corinthians, they're a living letter. And that living letter is basically written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on flesh, that is, on our hearts. So you see, it's the Holy Spirit who has the task of carrying out the actual writing of Jesus as the new covenant in our hearts and in our minds. I do want to read um, the same verse in the complete Jewish Bible. Give it a little different flair, but the same intent. And we're going to go to, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. I'll start at verse 2. This is from Paul to the Corinthians. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You make it clear that you are a letter from the Messiah placed in our care, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. That's capital S on spirit. Not on stone tablets, but on human hearts. So, go down to verse 6 in that same chapter. And it says, Paul writes again, He has even made us competent to be workers, serving a new covenant, the essence of which is not written text, but, but the Spirit. That's a capital S on that. For the written text brings death, but the Spirit brings life. So that's pretty clear. It's talking about a new Testament experience uh, regarding the writing of a new covenant within us in two locations. And what is the point of all this? Where is this going? Well, don't forget now that the process of this writing of the new covenants in our minds and in our hearts is to bring us together into union with the very God that we lost our, our relationship with way back in Genesis chapter 3. The Messiah's job is to reconcile us back to the Father. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 5 real quick and watch how many times the word reconciliation shows up here. All right, down at the, where are we? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, like at verse 18. Let's start with 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, notice the word in, he is a new creation. What are we talking about? This writing of the new covenant is going to produce 
a radical transformation into the image of God. Continuing on, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Verse 18. Now all things are of God who... Now notice how many times the word reconciliation has shown up here in 2 Corinthians 5. Now all things are of God, verse 18, who has reconciled us to himself. That's a capital H. Through Jesus Christ. You see that? In other words, Jesus is the bridge back to the Father whom we lost in Genesis chapter 15. 3.15, I'm sorry. Genesis chapter 3. Uh, verse 15, and he was who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry, notice the name of the ministry, of reconciliation. Well, who's reconciling here? God with his children. Now look at verse 19. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the word to himself, the world. I'm sorry, I'll read it again. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Himself, that's a capital H. Not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us, again, this is Paul saying, the word of reconciliation. You notice that's like the third or fourth time. Now we're going to see it again. Look at verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Do you see how many times that shows up? It's a process of God wanting to reconcile with his children, and the means by which he's going to do that is allow his son, in the form of the new covenant, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, to be placed into our interior, not with stone tablets, but by the Spirit being written in our minds and placed in our hearts. And that is an interior makeover. It sets the stage, as Jesus said in John 14, 21 and 14, 23, for God to make their abode in us, both the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit. Wow. Are you ready for this? See you next week. Hope you have a ton of simple truth moments. God bless you. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's simple truth moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth.net at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal His simple truth moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise.